in the midst of the storm. In Revelation chapter 11 at verse 19, we read these words. John says, And the temple of God was opened in heaven, and there was seen in his temple the ark of his testament, and there were lightnings and voices and thunderings and an earthquake and great hail. You recall back in the opening verse of this same chapter, John was commissioned, or rather, uh, the angel, pardon me, angel commissioned John to take a measuring rod and measure the temple. That particular temple was, and it will be, the temple of the tribulation period. And so John obediently measured that earthly temple. But now at the very last verse of this chapter, we come and find another temple. It is the temple in heaven. The scripture reveals that the earthly tabernacle, the earthly temple, was built after the order of the heavenly. The pattern was given to Moses, and certainly uh, here the, the seer looks into the heavenly realm and sees this beautiful sight of the temple. I'm reminded of a passage, and I'd like you to turn there before I get too far into our thoughts. Back in the book of Psalm 27 and verse number 1 through 5, or through verse number 6, the psalmist seems to be talking along the same line as you'll find these thoughts tonight. The assurance, the comfort, the strength, the refuge that is ours in time of storm. And he writes in Psalm 27 and verse 1 and says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked, even mine enemies and my foes, came upon me to eat up my flesh, they stumbled and fell. Though an host should encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war should rise against me, in this will I be confident. One thing have I desired of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house or the temple of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For in the time of trouble, he shall hide me in his pavilion. In the secret of his tabernacle or temple shall he hide me. He shall set me up upon a rock. One other verse in the psalm, Psalm 31 verse 20, and the same thought is here again revealed and says, Psalm 31 verse 20, Thou shalt hide them in the secret of thy presence from the pride of man. Thou shalt keep them secretly in a pavilion from the strife of tongues. Now here we find the psalmist talking about the same thing as our, our subject, and that is a blessed assurance, a refuge in the time of trouble. I want to call your attention to three very impressionable and noteworthy truths in relation to this thought and in relation to this particular verse that we have read as our text in Revelation eleven nineteen. Three things. 
I want you to think with me first about the awful storm. The awful storm that John has already conveyed to us that will be occurring. The second thing I want you to see is the accessible sanctuary. The accessible sanctuary. And thirdly and finally, the appealing solace. The appealing solace. Now then let's look at those three things briefly. And first look at the awful storm. All around in this passage that we have read in the context of verse 19, all around there is a storm of frightening judgment. It is prevailing. It is very evident. You'll find that the trumpet judgments have sounded and as a result, the terrible judgments of God are being experienced upon this planet earth. The first trumpet sounded, as you'll find back in chapter 8 and verse number 7. And as a result of that, a stroke of judgment in the form of hail and fire mingled with blood. The result of that was one-third of the trees are burnt up. Can you imagine that? I wonder what that's going to do to the leaf lovers and worshipers around this time of year on Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. But the whole story is a third of the trees will be destroyed. And the Bible says in that same verse that all green grass shall be burned up. Then the second trumpet sounds revealing yet further and more devastating judgment in chapter 8 verse 8 and 9. As that trumpet sounds, a third part of the sea becomes blood. As a result, sea life dies in a third part of the oceans and the waters of the earth. Also, as a result, a third of all ships is destroyed. As a result of that, there will come great economic upheaval and disaster. In verse 10 and 11 of chapter 8, the third trumpet sounds. And as a result, there comes bitter and poisonous water. And the scripture reveals that many men die as a result. In verse number 12 of chapter 8, the fourth trumpet sounds. And we found there astronomical disturbances. Disturbances in the heavens above. The sun itself is affected. The moon is affected. The stars are affected. That part of man's existence as far as as what he looks at as most reliable. We rely on the sun rising of the east, setting in the west. We rely upon the length of days and the length of night. But the Bible tells us as a result of that judgment touching the heavenly bodies that that the nights are extended and the days are shortened. A third of the time is affected. As a result, only four hours of daylight. Can you imagine that? Not only four hours of daylight, but as a result, 16 hours of darkness. Can you imagine the fear and the awesomeness of such an experience as the Bible predicts will occur? And the fifth trumpet sounds in chapter 9, verse 1 through 11, and you'll find that demonic locusts are released from a hell. And the Bible talks about how they torment unbelieving men, the Christ rejectors, the God-haters of this world. 
Those who are sealed will not be hurt by this, uh, by these uh, demonic locusts. But the torment, the verse reveals, will be so severe and horrible that men will seek death and will not be able to find it, according to verse 6 of chapter 9. The sixth trumpet then sounds in chapter 9, verse 13 through 21, and you find as a result an army of 200 million will sweep over the face of the world in that area. As a result of these demonically inspired uh, armies, a third part of men will be killed. Already you have such devastation and loss of life. But again, a third part of the remaining population are smitten with death. Also revealed, there will be excessive murder, a demonic worship, immorality will be rampant, robbery will prevail. In other words, what a horrible time of judgment and awfulness will prevail on this planet Earth. According to chapter 11 and verse number 8, you'll find at verse 8 that God is about to, and I use the words of the verse, destroy them which destroy the earth. Now I'm talking about an awful storm and I don't know a better term to express and describe what will be taking place in this moment of the tribulation period. A time when God will determine to destroy those who destroy the earth. I think of those who destroy the earth, the liquor dealers, the pornographic peddlers. I think about the drug lords and the users, the gambling syndicates, the unbelieving Christ-rejecting men, the Bible perverters of our world. And God will say, you have destroyed and ruined my world long enough. Time will be delayed no longer. Judgment is going to come. And there is the sound of fury in the thunderings, the lightnings, the voices. It is all a picture of awful judgment indeed. So there is the awful storm that you find that surrounds this verse, verse number 19. But I want you to look now in the midst of all of this, there is a beautiful rainbow of hope. There is a promise of security. And we find it in the accessible sanctuary. Ah, John says, notice the verse again, verse 19, and the temple of God was opened in heaven. It's amazing when you go through this book of Revelation to find how many things are open. A door is open. The abyss is open. The, th the books are open. So many things are said to be open. And here then, it is, the door, it is the temple of God in heaven which is open. In other words, it is opened for access and sanctuary. That's the idea behind that that is open. And you remember the psalmist said, he will hide me in the secret of his tabernacle. He will hide me in his pavilion. Pavilion In the time of sorrow, in the time of trouble, the psalmist is saying prophetically, God has a refuge. He has a sanctuary. He has a protection for his believing children. Over in chapter 15, however, if you look there at verse 5, chapter 15 of Revelation and verse number 5, You'll find there again that the temple door is open, but it is not for access. It is rather at that point for egress. 
where the angels, seven angels, come out of the temple in heaven. And these are the seven angels who will pour out the bowls or the vials of the severe wrath of God. I'm somehow reminded of Noah's day. As it was in Noah's day, the door of the ark was open. The invitation was there. Access was available for people to come in for refuge and safety and sanctuary. But those who refused to enter into that sanctuary that was provided were recipients of the judgment of the storm that came upon that Antediluvian world. So here is the open door of invitation. I think John is just simply saying this. There's a refuge from the storm if you will take it. There is a shelter for you. And that shelter is beneath the sheltering arms and the wings of the almighty God. I like the old song that I hear sung every once in a while. Keep me safe till the storm passes by. And those even in the tribulation period who will follow the Lord Jesus will have a promise of protection, a promise of security. And even today, the Lord's door is open. And I hear him saying in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. I think that is applicable to two types of people. It is indeed applicable to the unsaved, and we generally give that as an invitation to the unregenerate. Come unto me, Jesus says, I'll give you rest. But I think also it is applied to the saved. For in the times of stress and burden of fear and storms of life, the Lord just simply opens the doors that were and says, Come unto me. I'll give you rest. I'll give you refuge. I'll give you a place of sanctuary. And so the Lord's sanctuary, the place of refuge, even in the midst of storm, there is that that is accessible to everyone who will enter in. I don't know what kind of storm you may be going through personally tonight in your life. I don't know what kind of trouble. I don't know what kind of dark clouds loom over the horizon. But I'm here to tell you that God's Son has invited you to find refuge in Him to find a place of, of safety in our Lord Jesus Christ. And finally, I want you to look thirdly at the appealing solace. And I mean by the term solace, exactly what it means, comfort, encouragement, and how appealing this is. Now, I want you to watch the appeal. The verse says that the temple of God was opened in heaven and there was seen in his temple the ark of his testament or the ark of the covenant. Same thing. Now the word covenant simply means agreement. An agreement that God had especially given to the people of Israel. The Lord had given them his commands and now had said, uh, said that they had said in response to those commands, whatever you say, that's what we're going to do. But you and I know very well that they did not abide perfectly in those commands, nor did they keep up their end of the agreement. Now, so we're talking about in John C. is in the temple of God there in heaven, the Ark of the Covenant. The measurements, by the way, of the Ark of the Covenant might be of interest to you. The covenant itself was of rectangular shape. Uh, it was some 45 inches long, it was 27 inches wide. It was 27 inches high. 
and it was overlaid with gold made of acacia wood or as the Bible says shittim wood acacia wood and that was overlaid with gold not only in, outside but also on the outside it was overlaid with gold what a beautiful thing that must have been on top of that ark of the covenant was what is known as the mercy seat where there was engraved in gold uh, those wings of the cherubim and this was where God said to his people I will meet you there at the mercy seat indeed what a picture that is of refuge what an appeal that is of solace for the disturbed uh, hungry fearful man or woman the Lord is saying I appeal to you and here is the appeal there is a solace there is a comfort here But I want you to pay particular attention to this truth. And that is the content of the Ark of the Covenant. There were three things placed inside the Ark of the Covenant. There was a golden pot of manna. A golden pot of manna. A second item was Aaron's rod. You remember the rod that budded. Aaron's rod. A third thing was in that Ark of the Covenant and that was the tables of stone, the tablets of stone upon which the finger of God had written what we know as the Ten Commandments. Now the significance of the Ark, I think, and its contents we didn't understand as well. And we'll understand what John is seeing as far as solace and comfort when he sees the Ark of the Covenant there in the temple. He is reminded, he is reminded of some very significant truth. The Ark itself signified to Israel the presence, the power, and the peace of God toward his own people. That is, toward those who believed him, toward those who obeyed him, toward those who followed him. It was then a sign to Israel that God's presence was there. It was a sign to them that God's power was available. And the very presence and the sight of the ark brought a peace to the heart. And I think that's what John must have experienced as he saw yonder in the temple in heaven when he saw that ark of the covenant. He was reminded that in spite of all of the judgment that is going on around him, God was still present. Hadn't gone anywhere, hadn't vacated the throne. He was reminded as well of the power of God. That God was all powerful and the things were yet under his sovereign control. Though the world seems to be in chaos and havoc and ruin, yet John looks up there and God in essence says to him as he sees that Ark of the Covenant, John, I'm still on the throne. And as a result, the very sight of the Ark of the Covenant brought a tranquility and a peace to his heart. The storm was raging all around in his vision. The storm was present, all such horrible things. But now as he looked upon that, he found a peace within his heart. And I want to tell you, child of God, as we look to our blessed Savior, of whom uh, the Ark of the Covenant speaks, we find in him uh, the promise of his presence, even uh, in the midst of the storm. What a blessed assurance that is. Regards what you're going through, the trial, the suffering, the agony, the Lord is saying, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. I'm with you. I'll be with you when you're living. I'll be with you when you're dying. I'll be with you when you cross over. I'll be with you. Ah, the presence of God. Not only that, but I think we need to recognize and the one whom that ark typifies, our Lord Jesus, sufficient power for whatever we need to do, for whatever we need to be. 
His power is available. Don't let the devil insert in your computer brain uh, the word impossible. When it comes to God's commands, when it comes to what God's telling you to do in your life and commanding you to, ah, with his commands, uh, he gives his power by the strength of his spirit for us to do and to be what we ought to be. Not only that, but we can look to him, our Lord Jesus, of whom that ark speaks, and we find peace. All the peace that Jesus gives. He speaks peace to my heart. He gives a tranquility when even in our world we see things happening. The threat of war in the Middle East. The threat of economic collapse. All of the things. The threat of loss of jobs. The threat of of sickness. of, Of a disease like AIDS that has no cure. And yet there can be peace in the heart of the child of God. Peace in his heart as he looks to this one of whom the ark speaks so clearly. But yet I tell you, I must remind you this. That same ark that speaks and signifies God's presence, his power and his peace to those who know him and love him and obey him. It also speaks of judgment to those who do not follow him. There's an interesting chapter or two you ought to read. 1 Samuel chapter 5, chapter 6 and 7 where you find that when the Philistines captured the Ark of God, the Ark of the Covenant, that instead of the Ark bringing them comfort and blessing and success as it had done the children of God, it brought disaster. Plagues came upon them. Death came. And they shifted that Ark of the Covenant from one to the other. And yet it did not prove a blessing until it arrived back into the hands of God's people who loved him and who feared him. And so that Ark of the Covenant, as John looks at it, it speaks of peace, of power, of his presence. But the unbelieving world, it heralds forth judgment. Notice the contents of this very Ark of the Covenant and what they signify. What a solace they bring to the heart. Look at the golden pot of manna. And I think it it speaks of two things primarily. The manna speaks of God's provision for us and the preservation of, that God has given of his truth. The provision and the preservation. Back in Exodus 16, you'll read the story and the account of the manna. The word manna actually is a Hebrew word that simply means, what is it? Israel didn't know what that was. And it reminds you of even Israel's ignorance and blindness when the Lamb of God came, the bread of life, the manna from heaven, and Israel didn't know who he was. They did not understand that this was the Messiah and they rejected him. He came with his own and his own received him not. And so here's a a type of the provision of our Lord and is also a picture of the and a a sign of the preserving power of God. Uh, Though the manna originally that fell on the ground of Israel's camp, you'll find that in Exodus 16, they could only gather manna for one day at a time. You remember that? They gathered it. They kept it over. If they tried to gather more, it rotted, got worms in it. And so they had to do it daily. But here's an interesting thing. The manna in the golden pot lasted 40 years and even more. The whole story is it speaks of the preservating power of God when it comes to his truth. We're reminded of bread, and that's the manna the manna that God rained down, and it symbolizes two great facts. It symbolizes the living bread and the written bread. The living bread, Jesus said to himself, he was that bread. I am the bread of life. 
I'm the bread that has come down from heaven. John 6 verse 51 and also verse 58. And Jesus said, the man that eats of this bread will not die like the people in Israel died who ate that manna. But he said, the man that eats this bread shall live forever. And so our Lord Jesus, the living bread, thank God, has been preserved through all the assaults, all the attacks, all the onslaughts of the devil and the world. Our Lord has, is, is preserved. No way the world can do away with him. Men may deny him, but they can't do away with him. Our living bread, like the manna, preserved in that golden pot. Men have tried to destroy him. But Jesus said, and they thought they had when they nailed him to the cross, buried him in the tomb. But Jesus appeared, you remember, to John on that Isle of Patmos? And you know what he said? Remember what he said to him? I'm he that was dead and am alive forevermore. And I want to add hallelujah. That's not in the Bible, but I just add that myself. Ah, he is alive. And the world may have tried to destroy him, but he is the preserved living bread. But let me say something else. That manna speaks of another bread, and that's the written bread. Luke chapter 4 and verse 4, Jesus referred to the word of God as bread. And remember he said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. The written bread. Ah, oh, listen to me. The devil and his crowds tried to destroy the word of God. But I'm glad tonight we have, and I can hold in my hand, not only the inspired word of God, but the preserved word of God. Modernists have taken their pen knives and tried to cut out the main truths and the doctrine of the Bible, but it still stands. The word of God, firm, and I'm glad that I can hold in my hand, and you have in your hand, in this old King James verse of the scripture, the preserved word of God. I believe God preserved that for us. And so it is, God has given us the message. No, the devil tries to destroy it, but God preserves it. Just as he did the manna that he put in that golden pot and set inside that uh, ark of the covenant. And I think it signifies that. And yet look at a second of those contents. And that is Aaron's rod. The rod of Aaron. Now here's an interesting thing recorded in Numbers chapter 17. There came a disagreement among the children of Israel. In fact, they were at each other's throats. They were in an argument. They were divided. And they were saying, hey, Anybody and everybody can have a part in the work of the temple along with the high priest. Anybody can become a priest in Israel. And so the division became so great and heated that the Lord said to Moses, Moses will tell you what to do. I want you to take from the head of every tribe of Israel a stick, a rod. And I want you to put the name of that tribe on that rod. You bring it in, leave it overnight. And God himself will show to us who has a right to the high priesthood. When they came back in the next day, all of the rods were just like they were when they were placed there except Aaron's rod. And the Bible said that Aaron's rod literally budded, that it bloomed and it blossomed and it bore almonds. It was the almond rod and he put it in there. And thus God was saying the only ones qualified to fill the role of priesthood and the high priest office are those that come out of the tribe of, from which Aaron came, which is the tribe of Levi. And I want to tell you what our Lord is saying, I believe, as this ark typifies our Lord Jesus. The manna typifying the living bread, the son of God. But the rod of Aaron 
typifying and signifying to us the one and only who is declared to be our high priest, our intercessor, our mediator, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is declared to be our high priest. He is the one who intercedes for us. And I want to say this. In all, in all kindness, Mary was not of the tribe of Levi. Neither was Simon Peter. Our Lord Jesus alone qualifies as the heavenly high priest to intercede for us. And there at the right hand of the Father, he does so tonight. Thank God for that. Those in Israel who would not accept God's revelation. Some 14,077 people died as a result of their rebellion against God. 14,077. Now then, here then, what we find in Aaron's rod is a symbol of confirmation. It is our Lord's confirming the high priest. And so it is, our Lord Jesus is confirmed as indeed that. And then finally, there's that third item, the tables of stone. In Deuteronomy 10, chapter 1, or chapter 10, verse 1 through 5, you'll find explicit instruction God gave to Moses to place the tables of stone in the Ark of the Covenant. Now, this was the second set. It was not the first. For when Moses came down from the mount the first time, remember this, Moses saw what was going on in the camp of Israel and in fury and wrath, he broke the stones. And the Lord said in essence, and I'll just give an over a lot, get back up on the mountain and I'll give them to you again. And God wrote with his finger the commands of God, the word of God. I believe my, listen, I have no hesitation believing in verbal inspiration of this book. I believe it is God's word. I believe when I read from this, it is God's own word to man. And just so God put, and God wrote, not only God speak, but God wrote. And here he gives that uh, uh, second set of stones uh, and they were to be placed within that, uh, within that, uh, uh, within that ark of the covenant. So as the manna, was a sign of the provisions and the preservation of God and the rod was a sign of the confirmation by the Lord. So the tables of stone were a sign of the expression and the fulfillment of the will and the way of God as he gave to Israel. And so in those commands of God, that covenant, God has given to man his expressed will. But about the second set of stones, let me say this. Man, by reason of sin, his depraved nature, expressed by Moses' own anger, man cannot keep God's commands. He gives them, but man fails. But here in this Ark of the Covenant, which is a type of our blessed Lord, we find a full... the precious will nor law of God. He is then my blessed assurance. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. In spite of the storm about us, what blessed assurance this is. The opening of the doors of the temple, God saying, come in. The very, the very uh, offer of solace, and, and as well, that very, that very promise that God has given us, the assurance of his presence, assurance of his power, the blessing of his peace. 
blessed assurance in the time of the storm. Where do you find it? You find it in Jesus Christ. For even as the tabernacle of the wilderness and the temple of old typified the person of Christ, so everything, every article in that temple foreshadowed this person who is our blessed assurance. Our happy assurance is in Jesus Christ. I'm glad I have too that assurance that though what John saw in this time of the tribulation, the assurance that he has given me is this, that as his child, ere these dreaded days of Jacob's trouble begin on this earth, the Lord will call out of this, off of this planet earth every born again, redeemed, blood-washed child of God. And that's, the, that's the event I look to. That's the moment my heart yearns for when the Lord shall come and we be gathered out unto himself. I ask you tonight, are you ready? Do you know this blessed assurance? Do you have that assurance in Christ? The only place you can get is in him. Can't get it in the church. Can't get it in your morality. Can't get it in the baptistry. It's in Christ. And if you've never received him personally as your Savior, let me urge you to do it tonight. And child of God, if you're troubled about things all around you, remember the door of the temple is open. The Lord's saying, come on, I'll give you comfort. I'll give you, I'll give you the promise of my presence, my power, my peace. He wants to give you that rest you seek. Let's bow our heads for prayer.